You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. We have developer and investor Baron Channer, the founder and CEO of Woodwater Investments, a holding company of technology and real estate. How's it going, Baron? Going well. Thanks for having me, Jamarlin. So out of business school, Don is kind of putting you in the game in terms of you're working on $100 million. Yeah, right goals. away, right away. Yeah. And, 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 and then, you know, the, he and I share a, a you know, similar temperament. So he appreciated the fact that once he armed me with the understanding of what he wanted to do and he pointed me to the information that ultimately my approach to what needed to be done would be consistent with his and my temperament. Remember, I, I'd, I'd been a wrestler. I'd been on a football team. So sometimes you have to understand how to work with entrepreneurs. And it's like working with your coach. Your coach is the boss, and he may say things in, in a way that's really meant to hurry things up. You can't be sensitive about it. Just do the work and do it to the best of your capacity. So I, I was always cool under fire, including in, in when we were negotiating with other folks and just played the team role well, so he allowed me to grow. Mind you, he was running a small organization deliberately because his view was I'd rather a SWAT team than an army. Right, it's manageable. You can have real relationships with each other. Yeah, you like can that actually, expression. Yeah, yeah, and you can actually control what you're doing. An army. So he's working with a lot of partners and contractors and keeping his full time team kind of small. Yeah, and and, yeah. and 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 in addition to his talent with real estate, his extra juice, if you will, which is what we all as investors and developers bring to the table, is assessing the talent around you. Right, because you can have partners, but are the partners good or bad? Are they trustworthy or not? Not trustworthy, and Good partners who are trustworthy are worth 10, maybe 100 other people, right? You don't need a lot to be successful in this business. You just need to have good ideas and access to money. Everyone else is being paid, and if they're good people, they're going to do a good job for the money. Talk about leaving you know, the Don Peebles uh, platform yeah. and starting your own platform. Sure, sure. Well, you know, first, it, 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 was, it didn't start off as an, an intentional thing. It's just got to a point where... He was growing in a direction where he and I both agreed. I'm not sure we had this conversation, but it was obvious that the next plateau for him was New York. New York is as a city and real estate is location driven. New York is a Super Bowl if you're a real estate developer. Right. So if your goal is to be a legend, you have to go there. The timing of that also coincided with the the timing of my grandmother uh, who passed away in 2014 my grandmother being sick right now mind you I've probably aside from going away to college I've never been away from my grandmother for my whole entire life for more than maybe a couple of weeks right so this is someone with whom I had a very strong relationship I knew that you know she was ill she was in her early to mid 90s and I want I did not want it to be that I was in New York or somewhere else chasing wealth while my grandmother was passing away and not being there. I figured if, if, I, if, if, quote unquote, I was losing time by not being with Don in New York, I could make it up. Uh, and so I ended, I ended up deciding that I had to stay in Miami. The timing was right for him to go to New York. It was amicable. We stayed in touch. Uh, and, I, and, and also, as I started to get into that, and made the decision to stay in Miami, I just realized, you know what, it probably in the long run was a a good decision because at some point you've got to bet on yourself if you're in the business of real estate. It's an entrepreneur's game. And if you're going to be an entrepreneur, the idea... It's time for you to become your own guy. Yeah, yeah. And and, and part of that, even if not for me, part of the way I think about the world is, can I do something that, you know, kids that I hope to have in the future can be proud of or benefit from. And it's hard for your kids to benefit from your job unless you're being paid an insane amount of money. But your kids can certainly pick up a small company and take it to the next level. And so I, you know, so I, I started to embrace, it started off with me wanting to be with my grandmother whom I would see every weekend and also my mother. And it turned into me embracing the challenge of now not having the halo of a Don Peebles, which was a, a, a tremendous halo, and being on my own, affiliated with him, but now on my own and having to fend for myself. The beauty of being an only child from Jamaica you know, is that I'm not afraid of, there's, 
the low, there's no such thing as fear of failure because what are they going to do? Send me back to Jamaica to, yeah. <laughs> to be what I yeah. was, a poor person Just in Jamaica? Somewhere. Okay, I've yeah. done it. <laughs> yeah. I was poor for, I was you know, nerd poor for 18 years of my life. Cocoa bread and yeah. patties. And, 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 I, and, I, and say that I did it. I could say, yeah. hey, I was there. <laughs> so talk about what you're doing now. Your, your, your new platform. You're running your own show. Yeah. Uh, talk about that. I'm running the Woodwater Group. And they're focused primarily on real estate, but also making selectively some technology investments. On the real estate side, it's about scaling the business, right? I've gotten my sea legs in terms of my ability to show that I can survive and sustain as a quote-unquote small business. Now, mind you, my small business is I'm still doing very large deals because that's what I was trained to do, but I'm doing very large deals with partners, including on occasion pursuing opportunities with Don Peebles and others, but I'm running a small shop, so I'm still doing more of that. It's cuts twofold my real estate investment activity. It's on one hand, large development deals, right? And that's, you know, for the development stuff, if it's not larger than 30 million, which is small by industry standards, but if it's not larger than that, it's not interesting to me as a development, right? So that's one side of the business. And the reason for that is simple. Development is the riskiest thing you can do. It takes a lot of time. And if you're gonna do all of this, and come out of it five years later with a million dollars, you might as well go and get a job. So if I'm going to do all of that, you know, I need to be in eight-figure territory in terms of the, the potential of what I can make to justify the effort. The other side of my investment activity is smaller, income-producing real estate, right? And the idea is like anything. You have to, even if you're risky, you have to have some safe foundation that allows you to springboard from and in real estate, oftentimes people get deluded to fall in love with the big, sexy stuff and do only that and miss the fact that when you're a real estate developer, not an investor, when you're a developer, I'm spending money from day one, usually for three, four years. Everyone around me is making money because I'm paying them. And if things go well, right, then I can make money maybe year four, five and six. But you, so that business model is not a smart business model to sustain over a very long period of time for most people. In the interim, I'm investing in income producing real estate, the regular stuff, strip centers in you know, regular neighborhoods focused on South Florida just because I grew up here. I think I have an advantage. You have under, a specialty. I have yeah. a specialty because real estate's location-based. I think I know South Florida, Palm Beach South, better than most people in the world. Walk the, the audience through the economics of a deal. So there's a $10 million deal. You have to get financing from a bank. Yeah. Uh, the investors come in, you know, kind of walk, walk the audience sure. through how the, a deal is set up. Sure. Well, fir- first thing I would say to everyone, and then I get into it, it's, 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 it's instructional because it was my experience. My ignorance led me to not appreciate the fact that you could be a person who is not a billionaire or decamillionaire and do real estate. I didn't know that until I was probably 25 years old because I didn't appreciate the fact that business was done with other people's money, right? And so, so that's the first thing I would say is whatever business you're in, there is, pro- there is probably a network of people in, in your city or near your city who are there to give money to people with good ideas. They just need to be- believe you're a good bet, right? So take real estate, average real estate transaction, and it varies depending on whether you're buying an asset that has income or you're conceiving something that didn't exist before. So let's take the, the latter. You're conceiving something that did not exist before. You're developing from the ground up, right? So let's say it's, you know, let's say it's $100. That, or let's use your number. You said $10 million. And you're going to borrow a portion of that in debt from a bank, which is basically an obligation. How much? Money you have to pay back. It's going to vary, but it's going to be in the range of 60 to 80 percent, depending on the type of asset and who you go to. Right. But these days, it's probably going to be in the range of 60 to 65 percent after the Great Recession once the government stepped in and started to create new requirements for bank 
for bank, new banking regulations, the banks have had to pull back in terms of the amount of money they lend. They used to lend easily up to 80%. That's first mortgage. That means if things go wrong, they're going to take the property from you. If they can't get enough money from the property, they probably have a claim against some of your assets, so they're going to sue you. They're going to sue you, and, and, and that's when folks get into foreclosure. And So the banks agreed to lend you... Uh, $7 million on a $2 mm-hmm. million dollar deal. Mm-hmm. An investor uh, gives you $5 million. So you've got $3 uh, so million dollars left, right? Yeah. $10 million deal, you've got your $3 million of capital to fill. If you're doing, you know, typically you can probably, there are either high net worth individuals, doctor, dentists, or others, or professionally organized real estate investment firms that are willing to lend you up to 90% of that capital, but oftentimes it's more in the 70, 80% range. So, and that's of the equity. So that's of the gap that's not filled by the debt. So if it's $3 million, 90% is gonna be $2.7 million. So with a $300,000 investment, you could control a $10 million project. Now, mind you, you know, one of the things we always say is you've gotta respect the money. So it's not as if these people are being fooled. The folks who've lent you the $7 million from the bank, they're getting an interest and you have an obligation. So you have to pay them and they get paid first. So they're taking less risk, they get a lower return. The folks that have invested in equity, the equity with you, your, co- your co-investment partners, they have, you likely have an agreement with them that allows them to take over if you start to do things that are objectionable, right? And also, they are being paid before you start to get you know, paid an insane amount of money. They have to be paid a certain return on their investment, which is typically it starts off somewhere in the range of you know, they have to get 8% on their money, what's called para pursue. So if they put in 90% of the money, they get 90% of the profits until they get an, an annualized return of their money plus the equivalent of 8% per year. Then you can negotiate what's called a promote. So you can say, I've now gotten you to your initial preferred return of 8%, 9%, 10%. It's negotiable. After that point, I've now succeeded in showing you that this was a spectacular investment. You should reward me by giving me an extra share, a bonus share. So now the rest of the money that hasn't been distributed you have 10% in, but you can get a promote. Maybe it's 15, maybe it's 20%. So now you're getting your 10% that you paid for plus an extra 15 or 20%. So you're getting 25, 30% of the residual profits after the preferred return, which is probably 8 to 10%. It sounds complex, but when you look at it on paper, it's just simply saying, bro, if I lend you money, you've got to at least give me back my money plus some interest for the benefit of having lent you the money. And then after that, then you can be rewarded by getting an extra share. But until we get to that point, you've not done anything intelligent yet. You've just spent my money until you show me that we can actually make money. So that's the basic concept. Some folks here in Miami, uh, they, they like the chances of uh, Amazon uh, selecting Miami for HQ2. If you had to handicap it, what would be the probability percentage for Amazon setting up shop here for their second headquarters? I would give us probably, I'd give us a 15 to 20% chance, right? Uh, there, there are what, 10, 10 cities in the mix right now. I think we're better than average. I do think we have some real challenges in terms of how the game is played out. And if you actually read the tea leaves and you look at what's out there, if I'm Amazon, uh, logistically, I want to be center between the mid-Atlantic, the southeast, and the northeast. Miami, you're making a full commitment to the southeast from a logistical standpoint. Politically, I want to be in a city that's seen as a influential city for classic America, right? That's where your D.C.'s and, and your D.C., Maryland, Virginia area so pops up. You're, essentially, you're suggesting that... Uh your bet would be on one of the three uh, metro D.C. areas. That, w- that would be my bet. 
That yeah, would be my, I, I agree with because that. Because I, I think Miami is a dominant player if they're making the decision that they want to project to Latin America. I've not seen anything that obviously yeah. suggests that. Right? Yeah. You, you've heard, you've read more about Amazon betting on India, their play there, than yeah. in Latin America. Now, that said, right, it's, it's, I, I, there is a very important element of this. Miami has made it into the top 10, right? So I heard, you know, City of Miami Mayor Francis Suarez say, we have already won. The question is now, do we win the ultimate championship, right? Because we, as a city, have to appreciate the need, as a city, to validate ourselves as a gateway of commerce. Everyone knows that we're a great place to party. Everyone knows that we have spectacular diversity and people are starting to appreciate us for the cultural arts. People aren't as attuned, in part because we haven't told the story, people aren't as attuned to Miami as a commercial gateway. And so they ignore the fact that Miami is has the 12th, I believe, as of 2017, the 12th highest GDP of any Miami MSA, that includes Broward and Palm Beach, but we all know that Miami leads that. The Miami MSA has the 12th largest GDP in the country of all, all MSAs, right? So we're exceeded by all the names that you would expect, the New Yorks, the San Francisco's, the Bostons. We're the sixth largest based on population. So Miami MSA is an ascendant region from economically, and this is a perfect opportunity. You know, sometimes you've got to get into a fight to show people that you belong, right? You take, had I not actually gone to the college that I went to and actually taken the test next to kids from Japan and Sweden and elsewhere, I would have continued assuming that little old me from nowhere is less intellectual than them, right? Yeah. So you've got to get, we're in the fight, and now everyone knows that we're serious. Who would you put after the, the three DC options? Who would be number two if we wrap the DC options into one? I think you can't ignore uh, Boston. Right? Boston? Wow, that's right? uh, interesting. And, uh, and I, I think because I don't think they're making this move for pure commerce play. I think you can make a Boston move, and that move can be about future intellectual property, having direct access to the Boston Corridor and all of the artificial talent intelligence. And, talent in schools seemed like it was right. score very so that, well. That, yeah. and, and, and then I think they would probably, they'd probably be able to get adequate amounts of land and they would have the region strongly in support of them and they would be clearly the big dog of Boston. Like If they go to New York, they're not going to be the, they're going to be big but you've got major financial institutions. You've got other major technology companies yeah. there. If they go to Boston, they would be clearly the dominant player in the technology, the new age technology space there. And yeah. In terms of HQ2's impact on the black community, in terms yeah. of you know, whatever uh, city they select, yeah. what would you say that the biggest impact would be Atlanta in terms of property value increases in terms of we saw what happened uh, near Reno with Tesla. We saw what happened in Seattle with Amazon, but wherever they place their bets, uh, right, there's a, a, a high probability that those uh, housing prices of are course. going to increase. So what selection do you think would have the biggest positive impact on the black community? Hmm. It's tricky, right? Um, and, and it's in part because the, the fate of my experience has been the fate of the black community is often decoupled from the basic economics of a situation. So if you look at most places that go through an economic renaissance, in part because we're not participating in that economic renaissance with, at the same level of, as others. We don't own businesses that are actively participating we don't own homes at the same level, we don't actually benefit as significantly as we should. And what that then translates into is we're disadvantaged because the environment has gotten better, folks have gotten richer, and on average, the black community has not. And so now they're made poorer relative to the others because things have gotten richer and, and they're, they're, they're forced out by the economic circumstance because they can't either afford the rent or can't afford to own in the area. So I would say it would be tough 
to me, the place that in which it would benefit the most would be the region that would be most aggressive about negotiating to ensure inclusivity in the economic fallout or economic windfall. So where is the place that's talking about local, about training and jobs? Where is the place that's talking about contracts for our business owners? Where's the place that's expecting equity participation for our investors, right? That's the place that we're going to benefit. You don't think the biggest kick, though, in terms of uh, what's most likely to happen, wouldn't you say the biggest kick to a area or community is in home ownership in terms of wealth creation? So I get like there could be deals, there could be investments, there could be jobs. But what what would be the most reliable impact to expect uh, positive impact to expect wherever uh, Amazon HQ2 lands? I think it probably boils down to jobs and training, right? Homes are going to grow, but you're going to have to have equitable access to mortgage financing at rates that are comparable to others. But let's say right? you take a city like Atlanta, you have yeah. you know, thousands and thousands of homeowners, right? But you know, pe- people forget, right? Atlanta is, has a sizable African-American population, but it's questionable whether or not Atlanta as a city has a majority African-American population. So don't forget, there are a lot of Caucasians and others sitting in Atlanta that would also benefit, and God bless them for it. Yeah, I mean, other people are going to benefit for sure. Yeah, other people are going to benefit. But the, the bigger point that I was making is that the value of homes going up may be relevant to a couple of the folks that are there, but there's also the displacement effect, right? Yeah. Can you trade out of your home? I believe everyone should have the right to sell their home. The question is, if you sell your home and make and, and capture the wealth that comes from that, the equity that was built into it, can you roll into another circumstance that is actually beneficial to you? Or have you now created a your, your, your sort of cash rich but property poor, right? Because you can't find something that you can afford. What are your thoughts on folks in Atlanta being concerned that, hey, if Amazon HQ2 lands here, mm-hmm. uh, this city is going to flip to white, from black to, to white. It's going to be gentrified, and Amazon is, is really going to impact the character of the city in a negative way, specifically as it relates to black people. Yeah, I mean... I. I wouldn't characterize it as negative, but I think there were definitely... A net negative, at least for, for, for folks pop, who have voice concerns. Got yeah. you, got you, yeah. So uh, I think that's a legitimate concern, right? If you look at the numbers and, and, and if you paid attention to the recent mayoral race in which the population dynamics were brought up, the reality is today the city of Atlanta it has, you know, it, it's questionable. I, I couldn't tell you because I've not studied it, but it has a very large Caucasian population that I believe either is equivalent to or already exceeds the black population. That's just not obvious in the politics of the city. Well, some the, people would argue that uh, the, the white Democrat uh, who ran for mayor, she almost one and, and, and the politics are, are actually supporting what you're saying that this thing is really right down the yeah middle. and I'm not sure she was a I'm not sure she was a Democrat and you know, I had had the privilege of being exposed to some of the numbers by colleagues of mine and what became obvious to me was there is a huge skewing of the Republican vote almost to the tune of I think she got maybe 80 percent of the Republican vote and you ask yourself are diehard Republicans just voting for her because she is white? Or do they know something that we don't know? I would think that, hey, there's no way a conservative Republican is going to be mayor of Atlanta. So if we have to have a Democrat uh, mayor, most likely this lady is going to run Atlanta better. And she has more distance than the old guard establishment who many perceive as corrupt. I hear you. To to, to knock on a key point, though, I think we've got to appreciate the numbers as black people, right? It's we're 13% of the national population. We're also in an era during which you're having the rise of super regions, right? So there folks... Baby boomers and millennials are all moving wherever they live. They're generally moving to an urban environment 
when that and, and that's of all all races. So if white folks in the southeast are looking around and saying, where do I go? What's a spectacular city for me to live in and have a really cosmopolitan experience? The list is relatively short in the southeast if you're not looking to travel 500 miles. Maybe you look at a Nashville. You're certainly looking at an Atlanta. Maybe you're considering an Orlando. And so folks are going to start to move there. When those folks start to move there, 87% of the people in this country, maybe 88%, are not black. So that means that net-net, the people who are going to be moving in are going to be, particularly a city like Atlanta that has had a rich and you know, history of a high black population, they're not going to get six out of every 10 people now moving to the city, now that the city is one of America's leading city, will not be black. So just over time, it's going to, the, the, the numbers are going to dilute a bit. Right. Do you think the black community in Atlanta should resist this uh, demographic change? Um, no. I, I do think the black community in Atlanta, as well as the black community in Miami, which you know, I'm active in some of these conversations, should always be asking the question and challenging their leaders and themselves to make sure that they're part of the equation, right? If there's a party, let's say these people are moving to Atlanta because they're jobs, and there's wealth to be had, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur. And no reason to stop the other people from getting into the party. The question is, can I get in as well? If, I, if, the, if, if the setup is such that I don't believe it's equitable and I don't have a fair chance to get into the game, then yeah, I should be concerned about there being a party that I'm not invited to. And the analogy that I use to most people when I talk about this is, a party is a noise nuisance if you're the next door neighbor. A loud party is a blast if you're in the party, right? So what did you always do as a kid if you didn't want your neighbors to complain on you? You invited them to the party and magically no one called the police. That's the same thing as it relates to economic development is oftentimes the black community is not intentionally invited to the party. And sure, there are few of us, myself and yourself included, who have the fortune of, of somehow having gotten ourselves into all sorts of parties, but the average person who comes from the neighborhood I grew up in, who went to the elementary school that I went to, they're not being afforded the opportunity to maximize their intellect. It has nothing to do with their lack of intellect. You know, I, I've gone from uh, English for speakers of other language at a public school in a lower income community in Miami to Wharton I've had friends who were sons and daughters of royalties and friends who were sons and daughters of drug dealers, and I've not seen a substantial difference in their intellectual capacity. I've seen a difference in their understanding of the world and the amount of information they've digested, and that's really just about opportunity, right? You point, you point me in the wrong direction, and I may end up in some of the same places that some of my friends ended up, and you point me in a different direction. The black community needs to be more intentionally included in the economic development conversation. And none of us are really having that discussion. We're talking about how to stop other people. We're not talking about how to play offense. And if you can't play offense economically, if you're not building wealth, if you're not managing your finances or the people around you aren't managing your finances, if you don't have uh, appropriate ways of covering the, the disaster events that occur in your life, health insurance and life insurance, eventually you're going to be losing out to others who are amassing wealth incrementally. And they may not seem tremendously wealthier than you during your lifetime, but their kids now start with a better leg up and it just keeps building from there. A group of uh, black investors give you $100 million and they say that you need to build an institution to focus on two issues only. One issue is the police uh, institutionally murdering black people, innocent black people. The other issue is black on black violence. Mm -hmm. If you break those two issues up into your portfolio mm -hmm. in terms of, hey, I have to you know, invest to make an impact uh, what percentage goes to black-on-black -black violence 
and what percentage goes to police across America killing innocent black people? Yeah. How would you allocate that? Sure. Heavy allocation to black on black, probably to the tune of 80-85%, and 15-20% to to the police issue. And and I explained it the following way. To me, the police issue is a technical issue that could be legislated or lobbied out of existence. Because I think it comes down to the training, right? And and, and the, the training and the expectations, right? If the expectation, if the, if the training is such that the black folks in the community are seen as threats more often than not, and the expectation is low that you'll be punished for transgressing against their, you know, against their, transgressing against their rights, then you're going to have violence. I think you can deal with that issue in a matter of probably less than five years if you had enough money to advocate at the right level. The issue as it relates to black-on-black crime, black-on-black violence, has multiple levels. There's an economic pragmatism to it, right? A lot of the people who are committing acts of violence, if they thought they could make a quarter million dollars or $100,000 doing something else in air condition and be lauded for it, they'd be doing that instead of whatever got them into the point of doing crime. So that's one. There's a psychological element to it, right? Uh, in the sense that you know, if you live in a world in which folks perceive you to be less, you start to perceive yourself to be less, and most people can't digest that, so you project that. So now the people who look like you, you have a higher level of aggression towards them than you made to certain other folks. So there's a psychological element to it. And then you've got real issues as it relates to the support structure. So there's a lot of things that would need to be brought together, could be brought together, but the resources need to be significant and concentrated. So you'd have to put 80, 85%, heck, maybe 90%, if it's $100 million, into just that alone, and, and start by focusing on successes that can be celebrated. Everyone gravitates to a success. You know, I, I take, as a perfect exa- example, I tell folks, you know, take a look at the perspective of the hip hop generation as it relates to business ownership, right? There was a time where everyone just wanted to be on wax and they were being distributed and produced by someone else and they never cared about the points, they never cared about the merchandising. They had no concern about accounting, just perform, you know, drinks, fast life, and that's it. You move forward and they start to realize that the people they idolize, the masterpiece, the Diddies and others are actually business Jay-Z's are actually now thinking about business ownership and magically all the same people who have always been perceived to not have an interest in anything cerebral and not be interested in business all want to be a boss and they all want to have their own merchandise and they all know what a 360 deal is. They all have a website and someone, cousin, friend or other doing social media. So now the whole culture around hip-hop and all the kids who are tied to it, even the preteens, have embraced the idea of being entrepreneurs and business people without even articulating it as such. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarlin Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's get back to the podcast. What would you say to a minority segment in the community would say that, hey, we need to be just, we need to be doing just as much marching and activism about black on black violence are more than, you know, whenever a white police officer shoots an innocent black person, uh, that, you know, we need to have so much more priority on what we're doing to each other and within our communities than reacting to whenever a police officer murders uh, an innocent black person. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would agree with that, right? I would, because the, the issue is you know, probably even more detrimental to our community. That said, everything has a rationale behind it, right? The reality is that if, you, if the, the black community at this point has faced these, these waves of violence within our community, most of them economic-born for so long, that no resistance, right, no army can withstand 
the barrage of decades on decades of things happening to them. So the black community is kind of beaten down now. Now, it's like, hey, we've been killing each other for so long. It's not really comparable. It's kind of, you know, yeah, think about it. It's normalized. Yeah. And and, and not to the same degree for everyone, but you think about it. Go and take a look at we all have YouTube now and, 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 and other channels. Go and take a look at the interviews with folks who are now two or three generations into gang violence. And they're talking about people being shot in the head, almost the same as the average person talks about punching someone in the face. And what about uh, Chicago, of course, is a hot spot yep. for black on black violence. Uh, so Obama is out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's an activist in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He becomes president. Mm-hmm. The Nation of Islam, an organization that's been deep and embedded uh, with progressive things in black America. Farrakhan Nation of Islam, they're based in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Chicago has had black politicians. Why is Chicago so wild mm-hmm. when you have these black leaders of influence and institutions? Mm-hmm. Barack Obama, Nation of Islam, Farrakhan. But Chicago is just a mess. How much accountability needs to be assigned to the politicians and leaders, uh, including the names that I mentioned, where why can't we have a better effort to to address the violence in Chicago? Sure. Well, like we, we get like, hey, white folks need to do more. We get that. But what what can we be doing better? Let's tackle that that question. What could we be doing better? I think it's about focus. Right. You, you mentioned the point of this issue being such a, an issue that should be focused on in part because of, of influence. But the reality is influence on who, right? If you think about the folks who are really living the, the violent episodes in Chicago, and by the way, Baltimore went through its stretch, Miami went through its stretch, LA, New York. So this thing comes and it goes. It's not, it's not endemic or unique to Chicago. It's just unfortunately their time now and, I, and it seems as if... But it's relevant, right? though, that Barack Obama is from Chicago. Yeah. He, he pushed uh, his activism in the streets of Chicago. He's embedded in Chicago. He becomes president of the free world from Chicago. He knows that Chicago is a mess. The Nation of Islam is based in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Okay. But this, the, the issue on black-on-black violence it seems like it's getting worse, meaning that you have black leaders and institutions in seats of influence and power, but this issue is getting worse. Uh, I mean, it doesn't sound sensible to me to expect that white folks are going to change or the police departments are going to change anytime soon. So it sounds to me that the focus should be on how can we pull our resources together, hold leaders accountable, and better address the violence in Chicago? Yeah. All right. So l- l- let me tackle that from my perspective. Uh, one, I don't think it would, it, would, it would ever be realistic to expect the police to play a meaningful part in the level of violence because they're there to contain the fire, right? Now, we can argue, and, 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 and I think that it, it is true that at times— in containing the fire, they're transgressing against the civil rights of some of these folks and, and treating them in a way that doesn't seem to respect their humanity, right? But I'm sure that there are reasons for that. So the, take the police out, right? The, to me, the real issue here has to do with ha- the, what's happening at the neighborhood and family level, right? If you have circumstances where you have large populations of young people who do not feel connected to the larger society, do not feel optimistic about their future or even their lives. And, you know, I've not spent a lot of time in Chicago, but when I hear the interviews, many of these kids don't think they're going to live past the age of 18, which in reality, I was in a situation like that where I was just happy. Oh, I, I forgot a name. Jesse Jackson is also out okay. of Chicago. Everybody's out, right. of, out of Chicago. So all out of Chicago. But my point is the focus needs to be placed at the level where it can have most impact. All the people that you're naming, President Obama, uh, Mr. Jackson, the Nation of Islam, their influence is at a level 
that is above that doesn't resonate with the people who are actually experiencing the violence. They may know them, but there's not a emotional connection to them. And so in terms of what could we and what should we do different, I think. But, if, but what would you say if Barack Obama? Yeah, he's in, he's he's the president for eight years. Yeah. Nation of Islam has been in Chicago forever. Jesse Jackson has been in Chicago forever. If these people are not, if these leaders cannot drive impact with black on black violence in Chicago, do you, what, 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 I mean, who, well, look, who well, else is going to come in and, and, and kind of, you know, do something better? Easy. And I, I would tell you, the, the people that have the time to really dedicate themselves to the hard work. So President Obama during his eight years was the president of the entire country, right? I think we're going to see here- I don't buy that. Uh, I mean, I get that uh, President Obama was the president of the entire country, but you have seen over and over again when presidents get in power, they really respond to their donors, the people who supported them, uh, and they, in nuanced ways, yeah. they address some of the needs of specific groups yeah. uh, uh, that are responsible uh, for their uh, for their win. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, although Obama is the president, yes, of the entire United States, the people we may not have the money of some of these lobbyists and interest groups. Mm-hmm. We may not have the 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 lobbying money of a Silicon Valley mm-hmm. uh, uh, or other industries. However, we voted for you. We we voted for you in masses like never before. Mm-hmm. So we deserve for you to put stick your neck out and deliver for this community specifically. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge is this, and we're talking about black-on-black violence, and we're, and we're using Chicago as an example. There are others, but we're using Chicago. No one person can address that issue in a sustainable way, right? And I, I think the big missing piece here is that we have not had, and, and maybe the federal government could play a part in this, we have not had a true sustained investment in the social organizations that are in these communities and have the connections at a ground level. The reality is, if you look at Chicago, I would, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'd probably bet that there are probably 5,000 individuals, individual people, maybe even less, that are directly involved, either perpetrators or the victims of the violence that we're talking about. And those people are imminently salvageable folks, but they need to be reasoned with in a way that they can understand. And that doesn't happen simply by out debating them one time. It's a relationship. It's a context. It's creating an environment in which they can be hopeful, if not for themselves, they can be hopeful about their kids and or the people that they care about and or love. Right. And the challenge ends up being when we try to have the magnificent savior, you think about in the 90s, right, whenever they had the L.A. riots or the L.A. gang violence would flare up, Jim Brown, who everyone respected, would show up, Ice-T or, or someone else would show up. They'd stop the violence for a month and things would go down. And then invariably they'd flare up again because the sustained com- ability to invest in the community in creating hopefulness People that are hopeful, especially young people that are hopeful, and young boys in particular, are not violent. They may be despondent in terms of, woe is me, I'm poor, but they're not violent. The people who are per, you know, perpetuating violent on a sustained basis, they have lost hope and they have turned that into aggression. There was a, a couple of instances where you had folks just getting fed up yeah. with the police murders against black people. And they started kind of just shooting innocent police officers, uh-huh. right? Do you think the police departments in America should ex- expect more random violence if the black community is just going to have to just absorb uh, what I believe is uh, systematic oppression, you know, with the with the killings of uh, innocent black people, meaning that 
the more this goes on and the more visibility that's out there, we have the cameras, we have it on video, the people are really in tune in terms of what's going on at the local level now. How much pain is the black community going to take before, meaning if it's not addressed by politicians, it's not addressed by religious leaders, it's not addressed by America, where you're going to, to me, you're probably going to expect that there's going to be more of these instances where the people have tried everything. We tried to vote. We voted for Obama. Uh, you know, we're trying to reform the police, body cameras. Nothing, this, the police departments are so racist that nothing is, maybe nothing works. And so you're going to have more kind of desperation events where black people in the United States, they start firing back at police. Yeah. Well, a couple of things. I'm, I, I'm not on the side of thinking that the police departments are racist. I think they're a racist people in all walks of life. And unfortunately, you give someone a gun. Hold up. Right? You're serious. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very believe, serious. You don't believe as an institution. Yeah. Let's say if you aggregate the institutions in America. Yeah. Obviously, some police departments are better than others. You don't think that they ha- there's enough data out there to say that the police departments in America are racist. You, you think? No, I, I think a couple of things, and, and, and you know, to qualify that, right? I believe that most instances are result from easily discernible circumstances. So I think the police in that we see, right? Because that's what we're talking about. The police in that we see is a combination of two things. One, the larger society, including black people, have been deluded to believe that black men are the biggest problem in our society, right? And, and in terms of physical violence. And you just think about it, if, you know, most people I know, if they're walking around at 11 o'clock at night and they see a random black guy they don't know who's not dressed in a way they assume, they're now magically more curious about what that person is doing than if that person weren't black. That's everyone. Right. So I think you have that. uh, That's one layer of this is there's this negative bias against the black male in society, not created by black people, but we've inherited some of it as well. That bleeds into the police as well. The other part of it is the capitalism around the existence of police forces, what they're protecting and who from lead them to be in our environment far more than anybody anywhere else. And that's borne out in just drug arrests. Anybody in their right mind would know that black folks are not using more drugs than others, yet we're arrested at equal and maybe higher ratios. Why? Because the police are told where to, you should go and police that neighborhood. So you have the combination of the bias meet in more instances of things that can potentially go wrong. And then over time, there's just a certain apathy that's built up. If you've always just chased people down and arrested them and thrown them in the back of the car, then chasing people down becomes what you do. And then when they start to escalate, you escalate and, and you bring your frustrations. Also, you have... Okay. Hold on. So you're, yeah. de- you're defending the police department. Not defending. I'm just oh, saying that you I think... Don't, you don't think that it's fair to say that... Police departments in the United States and aggregate are racist. Is America racist? Yes, I believe America has. But the police strong, departments are not. I'm saying I'm saying they're not uniquely racist. That's all. That's all I'm saying. They're not. They're not uniquely racist. I believe that they have a racist bias that they inherit from. But it's like saying, are banks racist? I believe that the way they practice their lending habits could be discerned as being racist. Are employers racist? If you look at the way people hire, same credentials, uh, LaQuisha Smith and Mary Jane, LaQuisha Smith is going to be given the job at far lower, and, that, and those are studies being done. So there's, our society has a racist bias that's been built into it that we've never actually dealt with in terms of a conversation. And to me, Targeting, you know, saying the police are racist and not acknowledging that the country has a culture that's influenced by racism is ignoring the larger problem and thinking that you can just carve out one piece of the cancer and cure the cancer. We need to tackle the entire cancer. Now, the challenge is police officers have gun guns. They have arresting power. I think all of those things, if our 
Commissioner, if we were electing people at a state, county, and city level who were sensitive to the way policing should be, those issues would go away. The mayor of your city has a tremendous amount of influence over they police, how they police in your city. We just crossed uh, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King. Yeah. If Dr. King could speak to us uh, from the grave and, and kind of analyze what's going on, what type of message, what type of modern message would he have in terms of in your study of him? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think it'd be, a, it'd be, that'd be an interesting conversation. My belief is that he's, there are two primary themes that would come out. One, stop locking me in the box of being Mother Teresa, right? He was an activist. Now, he chose nonviolent activism, but he was an activist. And he was an activist trying to change intransigent issues, and he was willing to go to jail for it, and he was willing to exercise civil disobedience. So he would say, stop putting me on this pedestal and get to work. These issues still exist, and I want them to be changed, right? Uh, by the way... Dr. King uh, met with Elijah Muhammad. So when you talk about who, what black leaders are okay to meet with and have dialogue with, just keep in mind that uh, uh, maybe Dr. King needs to be condemned because he met with Malcolm X and he met with Elijah Muhammad who are on record with what many people would believe uh, racist or controversial statements. Yeah, right. So, so he, he would definitely say that. Then he would also say, this starts with race, but it doesn't end there, right? Because remember, he was moving on to the poor people's campaign, and he was moving on to poor people's campaign as a means to an end. It's fine to do away with racism, but if there's no racism and I'm still poor, has my life substantially been enhanced, right? The idea of being able to enjoy the fruits of your, your labor the idea of being able to enjoy the fullest extent of an American society, which is capitalist, has to take into account economic status. And so he would encourage all of us to focus on what are we doing to deal with the income inequities that exist. And 